So last week, um, we were giving you some thoughts on the comparison um, that you find in the early parts of Genesis. And I use this particular um, outline here, seven considerations uh, of a different way of reading Genesis. And we talked a little bit about how uh, a later history in the nation of Israel under the reign of David has a lot of similarities in the book of Genesis. And we went through the first six of those. Adam's story is a preview of Israel's a national story. The land promised to Abraham matches the borders during Solomon's reign. Abraham and Sarah's descendants are told that they will be kings. Number four, Judah, the son of Jacob, is destined for kingship. And uh, David is from the tribe of Judah. Genesis draws a political map of Israel's neighbors. Number six, God's preference of the younger over the elder brother. And then we didn't have time, and I'm not going to take a lot of time tonight, but um, there's uh, number seven is quite interesting. So in Genesis chapter 38, there's a story about Judah uh, and his, um, his uh, daughter-in-law uh, by the name of Tamar, and it's, it's a pretty dicey story but it has a lot of parallels to David. And so I, I wanna use this chart for just a second. And you probably know the David story well enough. Um, so I'm not gonna to turn to those passages, but I do want to, to turn to Genesis chapter 38 for a moment. In Genesis chapter 38, there's this story that is dropped into the Joseph narrative, which is quite a, ironic. So Joseph has a pretty lengthy section at the end of the book of Genesis. And this story about Judah and Tamar is kind of dropped right into the middle of that narrative. And the key question, I guess, is why? And it's a pretty dicey story. Uh, what we find is Judah, one of the brothers, um, uh, it goes down to stay with a man of Adullam. Verse one says his name is Hira. And there Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. And she gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at uh, Gazib that she gave birth to him. So we're told a little bit about his family, uh, his wife and his children. And then we're told that um, Judah got a wife for his oldest son, Ur, and her name is Tamar in verse six. Uh, and then what we're told is verse seven, but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. We're not given any other explanation of what he did wrong, but the writer of Genesis attributes his death to divine punishment. So now you have a widow uh, by the name of Tamar, and the, uh, the normal protocol would be that the next son would provide an ongoing heir for the family. And so that would fall to this guy named Onan in verse eight. And so he sleeps with her, uh, but he, every time that he does, he refuses to impregnate, uh, impregnate her. And, um, and it tells us here, that uh, verse nine, but Onan knew that his offspring would not be his. So whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep producing uh, from producing offspring for his brother. And so then we're told another divine punishment, verse 10, uh, he did what was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death also. So now Judah has lost his first two sons and he only has one left. And his name is Shelah. He's a younger um, individual. And so Judas says to Tamar, live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. 
for he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. So what Judah does is he does not follow the protocol of giving the third boy to Tamar to produce offspring. And so she goes off and she lives with her father, but she comes up with this, um, this ruse to, uh, to trap Judah and to secure offspring. So in verse 13, it says, when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on the way to Timnah to shear sheep, she took off her widow's clothes and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself and sat down at the entrance to Anaim. And uh, so she dresses up uh, like a prostitute and she hangs out and sure enough, Judah comes along and propositions her and lays with her. And uh, while this episode is going on, uh, what we find is she asked him a question down in verse 16. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. And uh, he says, I'll send you a young goat from my flock. So in other words, I'll pay you later. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? And so he says, okay, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord. So he gives his uh, personal belongings to disguise Tamar. And um, so the story goes on. And sure enough, she gets pregnant and um, she goes back and lives uh, back at her father's house again. And um, it, he, he follows through on his pledge. Verse 20, Judas sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her because she's, you know, she's back at her father's house. So the story goes on. And after it's found out that she is pregnant, um, three months later, verse 24 says, about three months later, Judah was told your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she's now pregnant. And Judah said, bring her out and we'll have her burned to death. So divine punishment or at least human punishment is coming her way until she produces this seal and this cord. And then what we find is that Judah becomes repentant. In verse 26, it says, Judah, not, Judah recognized the cord and the staff. And he says, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. And then she gives birth to twins. But this story has a lot of parallels to the David story. So look at this chart with me for a moment. So Judah uh, commits a sin against Tamar by not providing his third son so she can have an, uh, 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 an heir. And um, David also commits a major sin. And knowing the story of David, they're both kind of embarrassed into admitting their guilt. You remember in 2 Samuel that Nathan the prophet comes along and talks about uh, an individual that's very wealthy taking uh, a sheep from someone that's very poor. And then uh, Nathan turns it on David and says, you are the man that took Bathsheba from Uriah. So there's parallel going on here. They're both guilty and they're kind of shamed into admitting it. Secondly, Judah's friend is Hira there in verse one of chapter 38. But David has an ally, Hiram in 2 Samuel 5, 11. And it's interesting that the names are the same except the last con uh, consonant is the only difference. Now it continues to get interesting so Judah's wife is the daughter of Shua. We're never told her name, but David's wife, we know her as Bathsheba, but 1 Chronicles 3.5 names her Bat-Sua. In other words, it's the, the uh, son or daughter of Sua, and that's very close as well to the Shua of Genesis. Now it gets interesting. So number four, 
Ur, the firstborn child dies in Genesis 38, 7. And the firstborn child of David and Bathsheba dies as well. Then Onan mistreats his sister-in-law by not fulfilling his uh, responsibility. And then Amnon, the son of David, rapes his half-sister Tamar in 2 Samuel 13, 4, and they both die from the hand of God, um, which is interesting. There's a divine punishment that's going on. Number six, Sheila is being protected by his father from the fate of his brothers. Um, you know, he remembers what went on with Joseph. In 1 Kings 1, 17 through 30, it's interesting that David pledges to Bathsheba that Solomon would be the successor, even though he's not the rightful one in line. He makes a promise that uh, he will protect Solomon from the other boys. So you have uh, others that are going to claim right, the right to the throne. But I want you to notice in the third column, there's a similarity between the names. Uh, so S-L-H in Hebrew and S-L-M-H uh, for the second name uh, there is interesting. Sheila and Solomon um, have basically the same um, similarities or they kind of come from the same root. Then Tamar is mistreated by Judah in Genesis 38. And in 2 Samuel 13, 7, it's interesting that Tamar um, is mistreated by David. Now, uh, Tamar, I, I am going to turn over there just for a second because uh, that will help us to understand this last comparison. So in 2 Samuel 13, what we're told is his son Amnon um, is, is in love with Tamar. Uh, his his sister, uh, half-sister, really. And uh, in verse two, it says, Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything, uh, do anything to her. And then it says, now Amnon had a friend named jo uh, Jonadab, and Jonadab says, hey, why don't you pretend that you're sick and then ask Tamar to come and take care of you. Well, um, if you come on down, um, David is in on this. And uh, in verse seven of 2 Samuel 13, it says, David sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So, uh, so David, probably knew something was going on and yet sent Tamar anyways. Uh, so Tamar goes to the house of Amnon and she ends up being raped. And, um, and this will cause uh, all kinds of other family problems because his other son, Absalom, will kill Amnon because he raped his sister or half-sister. So here's my point in all this. When when you look at these, it seems as though since Genesis is probably written much later than we often assume, that some of these parallels that we find between these two stories are intentional. And one of the things that is probably happening is that um, to continue to say David is the rightful family line for the kingship, this story of uh, Judah and Tamar with all its similarities is dropped into Genesis because Judah in the blessing uh, that is given to the 12 brothers at the end of the book of Genesis, it's Judah that's promised to be uh, of the royal line that will be of the kingly um, procession. And so what possibly is going on here is this story is dropped into Genesis as a way of saying, yes, David had his problems. Yes, David committed adultery. Yes, David uh, wasn't right by uh, the way he treated uh, his other sons. Um, Solomon was favored. 
Um, there was also his uh, mistreatment of Tamar and she ends up getting raped and that causes all kinds of other family problems. So in all of this, this last point is very complex, but it, it is, it's most scholars see that it is really tightly um, compared one story to the other. So you can take that for what it's worth, but I think this last point kind of finishes off the topic from last week. And that is there's some David, although he's much later, um, that's found in the book of Genesis. And that gives credence kind of to a much later date of, of, of the book of Genesis than sometimes we naturally assume. So that's a complex thing. Let me see if I can answer any questions and then we're gonna switch topics for tonight. Anything that you'd like to comment on? So you can see that's what, that's what scholars um, do with the text. Um, we read it, they study it. And it, uh, there's a huge difference because they notice a lot of the things that we just kind of, you know, skip over or don't even notice sometimes. Anything? Okay. So what we're gonna do tonight is we're gonna talk a little bit about the flood story. So I'm going to assume that you know the basics of the flood story, because you can see it, there's a lot of text in Genesis that's given to this story in chapters six through nine. Now, the first thing that we need to come to when we talk about Noah, the flood, and the death of all living human beings, except Noah and his family, as told in the Genesis narrative, is we the first thing we need to really fess up on is this is an ugly story um, because I you know we tell it in Sunday school the ark and they bring animals in two by two and and all that type of thing but on an adult level we're talking about genocide here of the entire human race so it, it's a very um, delicate and a very uh, complex set of questions that come up when we're talking about this particular story. So the first thing we notice is it's horrific. On all levels, it's horrific. And um, why has things gotten so bad that God says, hey, I'm going to start all over again. I'm just going to wipe everybody out. Well, um, couldn't have God thought of another route? Or if God is all-knowing, why did he create in the first place if he's going to destroy all human beings in the process? So there's a lot of morality that's attached to this story as well. So you see some of the questions that come up here on the screen. Why would a loving God and master designer of the universe do such a thing? And then does this mean that God is still a loving God if, if he agrees to, to, to take this route? Um, or is there something else that's going on in the text? And I want you to hold on to that for a second. Uh, next, is the flood story unique to the nation of Israel? Did other nations write about this? Are there notations? Hold on to that as well. So I'm asking you to hold on to two things at the same time for a moment. If everyone dies, uh, then how would the other nations, if there are other accounts, know about it? And how did they write about it? So it's a confounding story. Um, there's other things that come into the story uh, as well. Is this a worldwide flood? Is it a localized uh, natural disaster? Um, and if all the animals, at least two of them, come into the ark. What about um, the animals that come from areas of the world that, um, you know, would have no possible way of getting to where this ark is found? 
So I just put this as an example. How'd the kangaroo get from Australia to the Middle East? Okay, so there's all kinds of questions that come about here. And then finally, did the flood cause the extinction of some living creatures like the dinosaurs? So we have you know, fossil okay. records that dinosaurs existed. Looking a bit, so. And so what mm -hmm. happened to them and, um, you know, and what caused that? So do you see there's multitude of questions when you enter into this particular story? So I'm sure you could probably think of a lot more of them as well. But um, let's just hold on to these for a moment. And Let's kind of move forward. Okay, so the first thing that we need to do if we're gonna understand this story is we've got to step out of modernity and back into the ancient world. So how would the Israelites have understood this story? Um, how did other ancient Near Eastern um, empires or uh, uh, nations understand this. So what seems to be a commonality is that not only the Noah story in the book of the Genesis, but the other flood stories that are found in other ancient Near Eastern literature have something in common. And what they have in common is that this was some type of punishment from the gods. So whether it was localized or more than that, at least the ancients understood that this is something that must have been a punishment from the gods because we did something wrong. So we got to step back out of modernity again and understand that the ancients didn't understand um, the, the land they lived on as a globe. They just didn't. Um, to them, the world was flat. And so to think of it as a global flood on the sphere that we live on um, wouldn't even be a part of their vocabulary because they understood the world to be flat. You remember a couple uh, Bible studies ago, I showed you kind of that ancient cosmology picture um, that was the way they kind of viewed the, the universe. Um, another thing that was common is seasonal flooding was just a part of their experience. However, uh, an extensive flood that might last for a number of weeks was out of the ordinary. And if, that, if it was out of the ordinary, then it probably caused a lot more devastation than just a temporary flooding that was a part of the seasonal cycle. So that's why they probably began to associate it with divine punishment. So we have to kind of put ourselves in their world, not bring them into our world. And, um, and the, the main thing that I think is important in understanding this particular narrative is why are the gods angered? Why are they sending all this water? And why is it destroying things that we need to live? So with that, I think that's kind of a part of the mindset that we have to assume when we step into the Genesis six or nine story. Some thoughts there? So I mentioned, did other nations know of this flood or floods, plural? And the answer to that is yes. Uh, in fact, the story that's in Genesis is not the oldest one. Um, so look here on the screen, uh, you see that many of the neighbors of the Israelites also have flood stories. And there's a lot of similarities uh, between some of theirs and the Genesis account. Some of the stories even predate the Genesis account uh, by a good number of years. And uh, one of them is called the Epic of Gilgamesh. We'll talk about that in a second. 
Um, but these older versions come from Samaria and Assyria and Babylon. But you'll notice on the screen here, it's interesting that there are flood stories in Aztec uh, culture, Greek culture, Hindu, Buddhist, Norse, Aborigines, Chinese, Muslim, and Native Americans as well. So in all their writings, there's these uh, stories of floods. Now, some of them might have been uh, passed along, uh, but maybe some of them are their own unique ways of trying to understand what happens when things like tornadoes and hurricanes and, and flooding and tsunamis and stuff like that happen. And um, so most archaeologists think that there was some type of a major flood that happened somewhere around 3000 BCE or 2900 BCE. And um, they, they think that this kind of set within their mindset and they began to ask the question, why? Why did we experience this? And of course, that same that same question is asked by us all the time when something unusual and unnatural happens. So right now, the story is still on Surfside, Florida with this apartment building that's collapsed. And the key question is why? Okay, why, why did that happen? And why did so many people lose their lives? So it's a, an ongoing question that we ask and try to answer as human beings. So it seems as though archeologists understand that there was something unusual that happened somewhere around 3000, 2900 BCE. And what's interesting is most of the flood stories that are generated out of that time period, uh, all associated with human beings doing something wrong and the gods are enacting their judgment upon human beings. So, What's interesting is these flood stories seem to have uh, significant roots in science um, and geomythology is the study of how ancient stories and geology intersect together. So these flood stories may have uh, tried to explain some geological phenomenon of natural disasters. And we're, we have the account that's found in Genesis. But Genesis will add something that the others do not. So we'll come to that, but I don't want to leave you in the dust if you have some questions. Any questions or comments so far? Hmm. So one of the ancient flood stories is uh, the Atrahapis epic and um, What's unique about this story, it goes back to the 17th century, uh, that, that's the surviving discoveries of archeologists, but it's older than that. And part of the story recounts a flood and also the reason that the gods made human beings. Now in this ancient mythology, uh, human beings are considered to be slave labor and um, one of the things that the gods want to do is get their rest. So you notice point number two, human beings were becoming too noisy and the gods weren't able to get their good night's sleep. And so the god Enlil decreed that human beings should be destroyed by a flood. Um, Atrahapis, through the help of the god Ea, escapes the wrath of Anil by building a large boat in which to save humanity. So here's where the similarity to the Noah story comes in. Uh, scholars will argue that the noise suggests rebellion against the gods for their forced labors, and humans failed to respect the distance that God had put between them, and they were not being what they were created to be, and that is submissive slaves that uh, is not going to cause uh, any type of revolt or in this case, noise. So the boat uh, is a similar um, uh, commonality with the Genesis story here. 
that I just mentioned the, um, the Epic of Gilgamesh. This is uh, one that comes out of Samaria. And uh, Gilgamesh is a historical figure living sometime between 2800 and 2500 BCE. But it's a story that has evolved because it takes the older story, it seems, from Atrahapis. And what it does is it adds um, some elements to it that is closer to the Genesis account. So this Epic of Gil Gilgamesh is a lengthy story. There's actually 12 tablets. But the flood um, element is not added until the 11th tablet that was found. And what we're told is that uh, Gilgamesh has this friend that dies. And he goes on a journey to find the secret of immortality. And that brings uh, the hero of the story, um, a guy by the name of Utna Pishtim, uh, and um, what we find is that Gilgamesh believes he has the answer to immortality. He finds, though, that he doesn't. And amid his conversation, Utanipishtim uh, tells him the flood story. Uh, and that's what then he takes back and it becomes a part of this epic uh, story of Gilgamesh that is added on later. So what does all this mean? So I want you to notice between these two ancient flood stories, how similar it is to the Genesis account. So first a flood and a building of a huge boat. There's pitch that seals the boat. The boat is built to precise dimensions. The biblical boat is much larger than the ones that are found in these other two accounts. Both clean and unclean animals come aboard. And a Noah-like figure and his family are saved. Uh, the boat comes to rest on the top of a mountain. In the biblical account, uh, a raven and doves are sent out. But in Gilgamesh, it's a swallow that's sent out. Um, animals fear humans. The deities smell the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice after the rains have stopped. And then there is some type of an oath that is given that a judgment won't reoccur like this. In the case of the Genesis account, it's the rainbow. But in the case of the Gilgamesh account, it's a, uh, lap, a lapsus lazuli necklace that is to be kind of the sign of the covenant. But there's just kind of similarities that kind of uh, are intertwined in all three of these accounts between the biblical account, Gilgamesh, and Atrahapis as well. And so the question becomes, is the biblical account taking the older stories and then changing the narrative a little bit to serve a purpose. And in the narrative of Genesis 6 through 9, what we find is an interesting theology develops. So the theology of the flood story in the Bible is kind of distinct from these other ancient flood stories. So what is the point that the Israelites are trying to make about God versus the God's who are just out to destroy humanity because they're making too much noise. Well, it seems as though there are two primary reasons why this judgment comes. So now I want you to turn to Genesis chapter six. And this is an unusual uh, uh, paragraph that's here, but there are two reasons that are given in verses one through six of why this flood came about. So I'm going to read verses one through six. It says, when men began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were 
on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every indication of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind uh, whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then we're given the Noah account. The Toledot account of Noah begins in verse 9. So what's interesting here is these two reasons. You'll notice them on the screen. There's this curious paragraph of the sons of God cohabitating with the daughters of men. And then secondly, the universal wickedness that is mentioned here in verse five. So it seems as though the bib biblical account is trying to suggest that the reason for the flood is there's some type of crossing of boundaries between what is proposed to be kind of divine and humans, and then the violence and wickedness um, that we're told about in verse five. And it's mentioned a couple other times in the, the account as well, that violence was on the face of the earth. So this story is added to, even though it's very similar to the other two epic stories that we just talked about. Um, what, it, what it doesn't suggest is that the flood was some type of out of control rainstorm where it just had rained uh, hard for too long. What it does suggest is that there's some type of divine reason for this. And in what we find is it seems as though the creation is falling back to the pre-Genesis chapter one condition where there is chaos that's reigning and God is going to start over because the order of creation that we're told about in Genesis chapter one seems to be um, deteriorating into disorder. So let me stop there and see if you have some thoughts or questions so you can see, is this a pretty technical story? It's not, it's not, a, it's not a simple Sunday school story at all, but uh, there's a lot of questions and uh, there's a lot of reasoning. And then of course, our own ability to kind of cross the bridge back into the ancient mindset rather than using our modern mindset. Thoughts, questions, comments? Yeah, Etsy just said, if you couldn't hear, that God wanted to destroy men and animals, which is interesting. So, you know, that's, again, going back to the Genesis chapter one um, on the sixth day of creation, uh, where animals and mankind are created, uh, that element, and birds of the air as well, yeah. So the key question is, why God? That seems a bit extreme, doesn't it? Um, wasn't there any other way to get a handle on the disorder and problems on the face of the earth? So what we want to do for a second here is come back to this paragraph and kind of talk about the first few verses in chapter six, because that's an intriguing paragraph. What is it talking about? The sons of God and the daughters of men. But um, I, I don't want to go there until, until uh, you're ready to, if, if you have questions at this point. Now, in order to get a handle on this uh, one story, I think you have to hold simultaneously three stories in your hand at the same time. Creation, we're just re referring uh, to that a moment ago. Secondly, Noah, and then thirdly, the Exodus. Uh, each of these stories have water in them. 
And um, I think what's interesting about this is um, even in the creation story, this idea of the firmament is in place. Um, and then, you know, uh, how does it go? I remember how, um, oh yeah, verse six of chapter one of uh, Genesis, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So water is playing an important role in creation, in the Noah story, as well as in Exodus, because that's going to be the means of escape as they cross the Red Sea. God is holding back the water for them as they cross into the promised land. So um, number one point, I think, of the, these three stories is God is the one that's in control of the water. When water is held back, there's life. When water is released, there's judgment or there's destruction. But if, this, if these three stories mean anything to a later group of people who had been in exile for a number of years, if God is in control of the water, God is also in full control of his people as well. And it seems as though in each case, God ultimately and finally tames the chaotic waters that are bringing trouble and destruction and this God is still um, the God of the Israelites. And I think that is what the distinct element is in the Noah story versus those other older stories that we were just talking about. It's making a comment about the nature of this God who chose them as a nation and who allowed them to go into exile and it gives to them hope that they believe God will tame the waters, uh, figuratively speaking, again, and they'll be able to go back home. So you have some thoughts there at all? Okay, so let's come back to Genesis 6. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, the big question that surfaces in this paragraph is who are these sons of God? And there's been a variety of answers that have been given to that. Um, there have been those that argued these are some type of tyrannical um, rulers that have the power to go and take women and bring them into their harems and do with them as they want. In fact, um, this is the most popular Jewish interpretation. So um, if you were to read a Jewish study Bible, this would be the predominant view. However, St. Augustine comes along a little bit later in church history and says that the sons of God represent the godly line of Seth, and the daughters of men represent the ungodly line of Cain. Um, and that was held as part of the interpretive history for a while. But I guess most recently, over the last uh, few hundred years, is there's been this growing knowledge of ancient Near Eastern mythology that they believed that there were times when the divine came into the realm of the humans. So um, you remember the two visitors that visited Abraham and, um, and it's believed that they were angels or some type of divine representation. And uh, Abraham is concerned about, um, about his nephew Lot and intercedes uh, when he is told that um, there's destruction that is coming to Sodom and Gomorrah. So this particular viewpoint says that there's some type of boundary between the divine and the human realm that was violated. So theologians have said that the, these are fallen angels uh, and that one reason for the flood was this uh, contamination of the human race with the divine nature 
cohabitating with human nature and that that's one of the reasons that God had to, to destroy uh, humans to get creation back on course um, because humans were created in the image of God and carry out the role of being God's caretakers on earth, but they never ever are given a divine nature. So again, this particular paragraph is one that I guess sets up the Noah story. You know, you see what I'm saying? It kind of sets it up. It's at the beginning and between the violence and this unusual paragraph here, it launches into the Noah story and kind of takes it further than the other flood stories that we have found and adds this divine element that God wants to put creation back on track. God is God. Humans are humans. God loves human beings. He, he entrusts this new start to Noah. And Noah, in, in many respects, is the new Adam. He's the one that's starting the human race over again. And that's why we're told in chapter six, verse nine, that he is blameless and righteous. That's Adam before the fall. So um, he's going to start all over again. And humanity is to be the apex of God's creation, not slave labor, as in the other ancient stories. So the unique perspective from the Bible is that human beings have dignity, they have worth, they have a purpose, they have a commission from God to take care of the earth, to populate and to fill the earth, uh, all of these type of things. And um, what we find is that the Israelites are kind of tapping in to an ugly set of circumstances and to an ugly story, a genocidal story, uh, to talk about this God that made human beings unique and gave human beings this ability to reflect his nature in the way they treat each other and the way they treat the planet. So um, thoughts there? Yeah, I have a question back on the last slide, Larry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was the last. Yeah. When you're talking about um, angels, you were thinking cohabitating mm -hmm. with, with humans. Mm -hmm. But we've always been taught that angels are basically asexual. Mm -hmm. They're not... So how can that be? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I guess the reasoning that would go behind this is that while angels might be asexual, they can assume human bodies. So remember in the Sodom and Gomorrah story, the angels that come to town, the, um, the population in Sodom want to um, use sexual violence upon these visitors. Now, there's a lot Correct. to that story. But um, do, so I guess the answer would be, or at least possible answer, would be that angels who are spirit can, you know, become incarnate, I guess, in certain situations. Um, we find that when angels do appear later in the biblical narrative, you have Gabriel, you have Michael. Right. Uh, they appear as men, um, even though, like you said, angels probably do not have, you know, the the male female distinction. But um, yeah, that's a great question. It's a really <laughs> So that's why then some other interpreters have said, no, this is probably meaning something else. They're these sons of God, which can often be a royal title for some, uh, kingship and, and royalty and that type of thing. Um, they're using and abusing other uh, elements of the population. But what's fascinating about this, though, 
is it, it, the term that is given in verse four here is the Nephilim. And the Nephilim were considered to be heroes of old men of renown, uh, we're told in verse four. So whatever it is, it seems as though these individuals, whoever these individuals are, their offspring have, have a lot more potential and power. They're bigger, they're stronger than the common population of the day. Um, yeah. You know, that type of thing. So, of course, isn't that what was told to the, uh, in the report from the 12 spies that go sp to spy out the land? They're bigger right. than us, they're stronger than us, that type of thing. And of course, the yeah. And the Philistines, too, and Goliath being one of them, mm -hmm. is much bigger than right. the common. So, you know, I think these different viewpoints all have both strengths and weaknesses to them. I really do. But one thing I think that no matter what position uh, you favor is that it seems to be the setup for the Genesis uh, um, story of the flood because it's right there at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So how that plays in, we might not know completely, but um, so you're right. That's a great, that's a great point. You know, does the theology nix that third um, viewpoint? Yeah. You know, so I guess the only thing that I would think of, you don't need to turn here, but in the book of Jude in the um, New Testament, there is a strange reference. I will see if I can find it real quick. And people have often associated um, this to that story back in Genesis. Let me see if I can find it here real quick. Um, uh, Jude, 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 where are you? Um, So if I can find it, okay, right here in Jude verse six, if you want to look at it at some point, it says here, um, uh, verse five says, though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And then there's this curious uh, verse, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. And in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So, um, there are some theologians that try to connect this angels that abandoned their, their position to uh, uh, the Genesis chapter six uh, stories there. So that, that would be the third of the angels that were cast out with Satan then? Well, the reasoning goes like this. Uh, yeah, there's, um, there's, there's a segment of the created order of angels that fell in rebellion to God. But it says here, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains. Was there another element of it that God has already brought judgment on, um, you know, are all fallen angels already in captivity or is just a certain segment of it is kind of how the reasoning goes. Um, and if they are, why does this subset of angels, why are they held in uh, imprisoned? And, and we're assuming that other fallen angels or demons um, are free at this point, that final judgment has not come. So, Boy, it's it's tough to get a definitive answer on this, yeah. you know. Um, but I'm just telling you that's one way that some of the um, biblical scholars try to 
to wrestle with it and they associate Jude's commentary back to Genesis chapter six. Whether that whether that's right or wrong, then you know that's one attempt to try to make okay. an explanation. Thank you. Uh-huh. You're welcome. Okay, so my last slide for tonight is um, okay, yeah, we have all this information. There's ancient flood stories. Uh, it seems as though the Genesis account uh, is doing something different than the other ancient accounts. But did the flood really happen? You know, that might be the question that some people will ask. So I mentioned earlier tonight that it was virtually certain that there were one or more local floods in Mesopotamia around 3000, 2900 BCE. Um, that was the basis for a lot of these flood stories that made their way into uh, the folklore of of the uh, the people that existed at that time. Uh, you'll notice on this slide here, but the geological record, at least as interpreted by mainstream scientists, discounts any notion of a worldwide flood that killed every single creature on earth, save a few as told there in Genesis six and seven. Um, so did the flood really happen? Um, there was some, my feeling is there was something catastrophic that occurred locally um, and they caused an abundance of these flood stories. I, I don't think it was a worldwide flood. And um, I don't think that they even had the mindset that the, the earth was a, a globe. So if you can, can envision we're living on a flat plane, um, the ancient mindset would be, this water covered all of this and destroyed certain things. Um, second point there is the contextual and scientific reasons suggest that maybe this is not a statement of historicity as much as a theological statement of identity um, and that the God of the Israelites is the God that is the water tamer and uh, can continue to bring new life even out of devastation. So the last point I wanna make, and then if you have some questions or comments, for ancient Israel, as for other ancient cultures, a cataclysmic and tragic flood had to be explained somehow. So Israel's explanation is probably no more historically accurate than the others, but it does tell us how they understood God and the place of human beings in God's world, because it just has such a higher viewpoint of human beings that God is willing to start all over again, as the story is telling us, uh, because this project or uh, you know, purpose of God is that human beings reflect him on the earth. And uh, that's something that God was willing to take a risk to do when he created mankind. And it's something that he continues to do to try to bring people back into their created purpose to be an image bearer of God. So... And that then obviously suggests that things like violence and um, the mistreatment of other people as accounted for here um, in so much of Genesis is out of place. And uh, so that type of thing. Um, thoughts, comments, questions? In the other, in the other uh, stories where, where there's a flood from other religions and, and civilizations, do they also use it for the purpose of, of a starting over sort of, you know? I don't think so. Approach? I think it's, uh, from what I know of it, and I'm not, I, I am not an expert on this. Um, from what I know of it is that for them, it is more an explanation of the physical phenomenon of, of too much water and the damage that it has produced. And because it's cataclysmic, it must have some divine connection. There, the gods must be involved in this in some way. But I don't think that there's quite as profound a uh, connection to this idea of renewal and starting over as, is, as in the biblical account. 
because back in that time, I mean, the only logical really approach for wiping out the world was was a flood. I mean, they really, I guess they could have set up a pandemic or or an epidemic, but that, you know, there's a little bit of that, I think, in different places in the Bible, but you don't really, I'm not sure they ever experienced or thought much about that. Yeah. So if you wanted to, if you wanted a physical way to destroy the world as they knew it, that was probably it. I mean, they, they didn't know about an asteroid hitting the planet or other possible, you know, cataclysmic events. Mm-hmm. So and also it doesn't seem complicated to, from a renewal standpoint to then think to, to then say flood wiped everybody out, but but there was a boat that carried the survivor, you know, the survivors of the world to start new, you know, both people and animals. I, so I, I don't, I, I do, you know, it just doesn't seem that complicated. It would be, because it's almost by default, the logical approach you would use at that point, if you were going to talk about God saying, I'm unhappy with what I've created and I need to start over. That's the, that's the obvious, maybe the only approach even simple people back then could have, could have utilized. I think so. I think you're exactly right. And maybe the boat motif as well is is important to uh to ancient people because they kind of believed let's say like in egypt that when a when a person died they have to travel across the river uh by boat to the other world the netherworld or whatever and uh so this whole boat motif might have been a part of the dna i guess of the ancient mind um 